Today's scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 42. And when he had said these things, he, that is Jesus, went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt, tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven, and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning, church. It's good to be with you guys this morning. Uh, sorry for the earlier, earlier uh, technical difficulties. Um, we're still trying to get things dialed in, and um, hopefully... Volume-wise, um, I'm loud enough and that you guys can hear me. Um, but thank you guys for joining us. It is uh, rainy and cold, but it's Palm Sunday. It's the Holy Week, and so we're excited to uh, celebrate this week. Um, it's a mix of uh, joy and sorrow, but ultimately um, we are looking forward to the hope that we have in Jesus. And so um, earlier we were going through our Genesis sermon series when um, the coronavirus hit us pretty hard, hit the U.S. pretty hard. And so now we're all in this shelter in place. And so Rich and I uh, switched things up. And now we are in a sermon series called um, Facing Our Fears in Times of Uncertainty. And so we'll eventually we'll jump back into uh, Genesis a little later. But it's also a weird time because today begins Holy, Holy Week, like we just said. Uh, it's leading to Easter Sunday next, next week, which is a huge celebration uh, for Christians around the world. And so... Uh, this was a bit unexpected, um, but nonetheless, we'll continue to celebrate the Holy Week and Easter in light of everything that is going on because we do see that the themes of joy and sorrow and renewal that we see in our sermon text this morning is just as applicable and relevant uh, to our current time, our current situation of suffering and uncertainty. And so this morning, it's Palm Sunday. It's when Jesus comes to Jerusalem as the long-awaited Messiah foretold by the Old Testament prophets. In the days following his coming into Jerusalem, it leads to his eventual crucifixion on Friday. And so this week is a roller coaster. It's a roller coaster of joy and sorrow. 
Jesus, the King, has come to bring salvation to the world. But how he does it is not quite what people expected. Right? In, instead of coming in strength, he comes in weakness. He comes through, it comes through his death. And so I have three points for us this morning. We have the coming King, our worship, and the man of sorrows. Our first point is the coming king. And so the Gospel of Luke was written to a wide audience, both uh, Jews and to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And it was to show that salvation comes to all people who believe in Jesus Christ. This is a primary and major theme in the book of Luke. And as we look at Luke's account of the triumphal entry of Jesus, we need to understand a bit more of the context. And so Jesus' entry to Jerusalem It takes place during the Jewish Passover holiday. The Passover holiday is this yearly event where the Jews would come together to celebrate the Exodus. And the Exodus was where God delivered uh, Israel, his people, out of bondage and slavery from Egypt. And so the crowds in Jerusalem, they were much larger than normal during this week uh, because all the Jews from all around the world, they are making the pilgrimage. They're traveling Jerusalem so they can celebrate the Passover uh, festival together in their homeland. And so this time is crowded. It's crazy busy. People were excited to come and celebrate. And the Romans, uh, they were ruling over Jerusalem at this time. They didn't want things to get out of hand. They didn't, so they wanted to keep a tight lid on things. They wanted to keep things in control. And so they were extra watchful uh, during this influx of people. And the Jewish religious leaders, they also wanted to keep things in check. Uh, They had um, a good relationship with the Roman authorities. They had certain religious freedoms, and they didn't want to mess that up. But we've seen through Jesus' life and ministry earlier in the gospel accounts that these religious leaders, they already had issue with Jesus. They had issues with his teaching, his claims, his authority. And adding to this, there were rumors about a political revolution. And so Things were high pressure. It was very tense. It was very volatile during this week when Jesus approaches Jerusalem. You see, Jesus, he was like nobody else. He performed miracles. He healed the sick. He raised Lazarus from the dead. He spoke with this authority exceeding anybody else. He said that he was God. He said that he could forgive sins. He said that he was the creator. He said that he, the Holy Spirit, and the Father were one. And so when this radical person of Jesus comes into Jerusalem with such noise, with clear claims of being king of all, it's inevitable that trouble will come. It's like Jesus here. He's hitting the beehive. He's lighting the fuse to the powder keg, provoking and challenging the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And so it's Palm Sunday today. And by Wednesday, the religious leaders have begun to plot the murder of Jesus. Jesus was this intriguing figure, and many believed he was a promised savior and king. And this is why we see in all four gospel accounts, his disciples and the crowds of Jewish people, they welcomed him as he came in on a donkey, invoking this prophecy in the Old Testament book of Zechariah. About 500 years prior to Jesus, uh, the prophet Zechariah wrote this. This is Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt. The foal of a donkey. You see, the Jewish people, they've been long awaiting a king from this line 
of David to deliver them, to deliver them. And Jesus, he fits this mold. And so they welcome him. Uh, they praise him. They, they want to worship him. They lay out their coats on the floor. Um, it says that in the other gospel accounts, they cut off the branches off of the palm trees. They lay out the palm trees on the floor as well as he's riding in. And these palm trees were symbolic. It conveyed uh, a victory over the enemy already. The people, they were eager to welcome Jesus because they believed that he was a promised king of Israel, the hero that would overthrow the political powers of Rome and, to, and he would come and establish this new kingdom for them. And so this is the setting and context of the triumphal entry, the beginning of the Holy Week. The people, they welcome their hero. Uh, if you are a fan of sports, um, think about your favorite sports and uh, the current superstars and the heroes of each sport. Immediately, people will come into your mind. If you're thinking about soccer, you'll think of Megan Rapinoe, uh, Neymar, Messi, uh, Ronaldo. If you're thinking about basketball, there's a bunch. There's LeBron, KD, Steph, Luca, Giannis. Baseball, you have Mike Trout, Bryce Harper, Clayton Kershaw. UFC, you have John Jones, Conor McGregor. Football, you have Mahomes and Brady. Why do we love making stars and heroes of people? You know, one reason is that we love seeing um, extraordinary skills and talents, and these guys possess that. Uh, they can do things that none of us can. And along with their talents, um, they're able to um, deliver championships. They're able to help the team win championships. So if you have a favorite sports, teams, sports team, you want some of these he superstars, these heroes on your team because they're going to crush the enemy. They're going to win you guys championships. And it sounds ridiculous if you don't care about sports, but when your allegiance is tied up to a sport team, You'll feel the pain of defeat. You'll feel the joys of victory. And so being an A's fan uh, myself in the past many, many years, you know, you'll get that glimmer of hope as they're making a run for the playoffs or doing well, and then inevitably comes defeat. And I'm left again in my usual numbing sadness. And I'm sure a lot of you Warriors fans uh, felt, uh, you know, the joys of the Warriors winning back-to-back -back championships the past few years. And then what happened this year? This year was a dump, right? You lost all your stars. Uh, some of them left. A uh, bunch of them are hurt. And you guys now have the worst record in the entire league. It sucks, right? It hurts. What I'm getting at is that we all look for heroes in our lives. If they're not real heroes and leaders that, we can, that can lead us into this promised land of victory, joy, and success in life, then we look to them in sports. We look to them in our celebrities. We look to them in our fictional books. We look for them in our movies, right? The Marvel superheroes movie broke all sorts of records because people love superheroes, right? We all know this to be true. And, you know, if you can't find our heroes elsewhere, we'll even look for that hero in ourselves. And this reminds me of Ma what Mariah Carey told us in her 1993 hit song, Hero. <laughs> she writes this, There's a hero if you look inside your heart. You don't have to be afraid of what you are. There's an answer if you reach into your soul and the sorrow that you know will melt away. And then a hero comes along with the strength to carry on and you cast your fears aside and you know you can survive. So when you feel like hope is gone, look inside you and be strong and you'll finally see the truth that a hero lies in you. You see, church, deep down, inherent in our being, we are always looking for heroes in our lives. And here in the Gospels, to the Jewish people, Jesus seems to be that long-awaited superhero that is going to come through 
to deliver them from oppression from the other nations, to lead them into victory against their enemies. You see, they want to win. They want to be on top. They want to rule. You know, who doesn't want to excel and win and succeed and prosper? You see, this is why the triumphal entry of Jesus was so well received. The people, they've been waiting so long for a hero, and Jesus has finally arrived. He is the hope of the world. He is the coming king to make things right. This brings us to our second point, our worship. So Jesus, he's being recognized as the coming Messiah by the Jewish people. And as Jesus draws near, verse 37 says this. His disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. And then in verse 38, they quote Psalm 118, which says, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. You know, a similar account from Matthew's gospel says this in Matthew 21. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. You see, the crowds of people, they were in awe. They were openly openly proclaiming that Jesus was the king instead of Caesar. This undoubtedly caused further volatility with the Roman authorities. But the Jewish people, they were excited. They were praising and worshiping Jesus. They were ready for Jesus to come to be their Messiah, to be their hero. And then in verse 39, some of the Pharisees, which we find out earlier that these were the religious leaders that hated Jesus, they're disgusted by what they're hearing. They tell Jesus to rebuke and quiet his disciples. Some of the Pharisees found it blasphemous that the people were attributing Jesus as the son of David, the Messiah. But Jesus, he accepts this praise. He replies to the Pharisees in verse 40. He says this. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. You see, Jesus, he's saying that even if the people were silenced, inanimate objects, the stones, the rocks would cry out in worship to him. You know, this echoes how all of the creations in the cosmos are being renewed through Jesus. We see this in Isaiah 55 and, uh, and Psalm 96, and it says this, Isaiah 55, For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Psalm 96 says this, Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Church, not just humanity, but all of creation, even inanimate objects, will praise Jesus as the king of all. This is the bold and radical claim that Jesus is making to his divinity, and he doesn't back down. He accepts it. At UFC 205, Conor McGregor, he's MMA's biggest star fighter. Um, he was uh, um, set to fight Eddie Alvarez, and coming into the fight, Conor McGregor was already the featherweight champion, right? But he was fighting Alvarez for uh, the lightweight title. And so he fights Alvarez, and he dismantles Alvarez easily, right? And he's the first person in USC history to win both, uh, to hold both current championships in different divisions. And he's this cocky showman, but he also has the skills to back it up. And so his, um, 
his fights are always very exciting. And in his post-fight interview with Joe, Joe Rogan, there's a moment where he addresses all of the people he's ever ridiculed and badmouthed, and he says this, I want to sincerely apologize from the bottom of my heart to no one. And then he grabs both belts, and he shouts, the double champ does whatever the blank he wants. And the crowd, they go crazy. You know, he doesn't humbly deflect the praise like some other champions do, but he, des- he knows that he deserved that accomplishment, and he accepts it pridefully and boldly. So I'm not saying that Jesus is this cocky guy that badmouths other people, but like McGregor, Jesus, in this moment, talking with the Pharisees, he doesn't deflect the praise and worship that the crowds are giving to him. He knows that this worship is his to have. He knows that he is king of kings and lord of lords, and all of creation worships him. He doesn't back down. Church, so even if inanimate objects in creation in all of the cosmos will one day cry out in worship to Jesus, we need to ask, how can we as his people, the pinnacle of creation made in his image, how can we not praise him as we should? Jesus, he's saying that he is worthy of affection, he's worthy of praise, he's worthy of worship, he's worthy of all the glory, he's worthy of our allegiance. He is the hero that we've all been created to seek and find fulfillment in, and nothing will truly and ultimately satisfy us until we know Jesus. In St. Augustine's Confessions book, he writes this famous line, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. You see, church, Jesus is who we were created for. We were created to love him, and he created us to love us. But we've somehow turned the thing upside down. Do you guys remember in our Genesis series when Rich preached about how um, our view of creation is disordered? He said the proper uh, order is God ruling over us and us ruling. You see, we were created to worship Jesus, but if we're honest, our worship is often so out of whack. It's upside down. Yes, we do get inspired at times to love Jesus, like the crowds here laying out their cloaks and laying down palm branches. We sometimes see Jesus working in our lives. We pledge allegiance to our king because we think he's coming in power and glory to deliver us out of our troubles. Yes, in our best moments, we'll give ourselves to Jesus and we'll promise to stick by his side even when things get sketchy, just like Peter promised. We may readily acknowledge that Jesus is king and Lord of all, But here's the real test of our faith. What happens when things go sideways, when our plans get derailed, when uncertainty comes into our life, when we don't believe that Jesus is actually going to deliver on the promises that we think he's going to? Is Jesus our king still during these times? Do we trust that he's going to deliver on the things that he says he will, or is he just another phony? And this internal battle happens pretty often in us, doesn't it? This happens in the narrative of this Holy Week. Jesus, instead of coming with power and might to overthrow Rome like the people expected, he comes and he's arrested. He's beaten. He's led to the cross to die in shame. And the people, the disciples, the crowds, they're wondering, they're confused at who is this king? What is our king doing? This happens in our personal lives today. Instead of coming in power to keep us safe and healthy and prosperous and successful, we are led through the wilderness and desert of life. 
we are confused at what our king is doing. Where is he leading us? You see, this is our struggle. We worship God when we think that he can give us the things we want. We worship God when we think that he can keep us safe, safe in ways that we think he should. We pledge allegiance to Jesus when it seems like all is well, and even if bad things come, we trust that Jesus is going to deliver us in ways that we think he should. But here's the thing. God so often does not deliver us from the scary things in life in ways that we think he should. You know, sometimes he does, but oftentimes he doesn't. And I think this is where a lot of the tension comes. This is where we don't trust God. We don't think he's for us. We don't think he's going to protect us. This is for sure one of the hardest things to accept in the life as Christians. You see, God does indeed say he will never leave us nor forsake us in Deuteronomy 31.6. And this is a major theme throughout all of the Bible, that God is always for us. He'll never leave us. But we're looking too narrowly at what that means. You know, for sure, it cannot mean that we won't go through hardships and difficult seasons in life. God never promises that we're not, not going to go through some really, really bad things. Nobody is immune to the crappiness of this fallen world. We know this experientially from all the wounds and hurts and storms that we've weathered personally, and we know this biblically. In 1 Peter 4, verse 12, it says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Peter, he assumes that bad things will happen in life. This is the nature of our fallen world. So he, does, he says, don't be surprised by suffering. He says, expect it even. We see a lot of faithful men and women in the Bible who suffered for their faithfulness, but God is still with them. Church, do you see in our sermon text, the triumphal entry is this joyous celebration of Jesus by the crowds and the disciples. But underneath that joy is this ever-present darkness and evil that threatens Jesus' coming as a king. Suffering and uncertainty is ever looming in this fallen world. We cannot escape it. Jesus could not escape it. So will the crowds and the disciples, will they still worship and praise and stick with Jesus when the darkness and the bad things happen, when their expectations of who Jesus is is shattered. And for us in our modern time, even though we know the how the Passion Week ends, we must still ask the same questions. Will we still worship and praise Jesus and stick with him even when darkness and trouble comes into our life? What does our faith and our allegiance to Jesus truly mean? And this brings us to our last point, the man of sorrows. So far in our story, Jesus, he's riding on a colt into Jerusalem. Um, the people receive him well. Uh, they worship him. They lay out their coats and palm branches. The, the Pharisees are rebuking, uh, telling Jesus to rebuke his disciples. Um, essentially, they're challenging Jesus' claim to being a Messiah. And then Jesus says, no, worship is mine to have. Even if they're silenced, the stones would cry out. And then comes verse 41 and 42, and it says this. And when he drew near, when Jesus drew near and saw the city, Jerusalem, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. You see, Jesus, he is crying over the people in Jerusalem because 
He comes bringing true and eternal peace and salvation. But the people, they're ignorant. They don't understand what this peace and salvation really is. So he weeps for the people in their lostness. And what's about to go down in the coming days for Jesus is this rejection of him from the very people that he came to save. You know, it's crazy how excited and celebratory the the crowds and disciples were during this triumphal entry of Jesus. But not even a few days later, they turn on him. When the schemes and the plot to kill Jesus, they're put into motion by these spiteful religious leaders, the people are no longer sure who this hero is. They're no longer sure who this King Jesus is. You know, they thought he, that he was coming with power and might to overtake Rome to establish this new kingdom. But instead, they see this weak Jesus arrested in chains with no fight. And so they abandon him. Maybe Jesus really isn't the hero and the Messiah that they were looking for. In 2007, Uh, The Oakland Raiders, they drafted Jamarcus Russell with the first overall pick. And he was this big guy. He had this cannon for an arm. He was was a top prospect um, on all the scouts' lists. And he had so much promise to develop into this superstar quarterback. And so the Raiders, they signed him to the six-year, $68 million deal with $32 million in guaranteed money. He played for two sad seasons before the Raiders released him for underperforming. He made $34 million still during that time. The Raiders thought they had their hero in Jamarcus Russell, but he ended up arguably being one of the biggest draft busts in NFL history. He let the organization and the fans down. They gave up on him, and they cut him loose. Jamarcus Russell would never make it back to the NFL. Their hero had failed them. This is probably how the people in Jerusalem felt, thinking, Jesus, Jesus Christ, he... He's the biggest draft bust of the century. But Jesus, he cries over Jerusalem because they don't know what's happening. They don't get it. They don't understand the nature of the kingdom of God, even though he's been trying to teach them this entire time. You know, Jesus foretells his death, and even his closest disciples, they don't understand. In times of war, um, these kings would ride into city, ride into the city uh, on war horses and, and with swords. But Jesus, he rides in on a donkey humbly and this was symbolic of him coming in peace and people don't get it you know the name jerusalem literally means foundation of peace jesus is the prince of peace but the people expected something else they expected peace to come differently and when jesus is finally led as a peaceful lamb to the slaughter as we're as we see in isaiah 53 7 they still don't get it They're thinking, what kind of king comes in weakness? What kind of king comes to be humiliated, beat, and killed? Who is this guy? Why are we even following him? This guy's cursed. And so the Jewish people, once praising him, they're now giving him up to die. His disciples betray and abandon him him and leave him to die. And on the cross, Jesus echoes Psalm 22, and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The king who came into the city with shouts of praise and adoration from the crowds, he's now being abandoned by all to die, even God the Father. What did he do? What was his crime? What was his sin? Church, do you see? 
nobody at the time could have guessed that it was going to end this way. They had no idea it was going to happen like this. You know, we take for granted that we have this fuller picture of the story. We know how the story ends, but they didn't. For what he had to do for the people, the very people who were about to abandon him. The people expected Jesus to come in might and power to slay the outside enemy, to run out the bad guys, but instead he comes in peace, in gentleness, not to fight the bad guys and the evil out there, but to fight the evil within us, to subvert the power of sin and death and corruption and brokenness within us. You know, the external evils and the suffering, it's real. Jesus does care about uh, justice and he will one day renew all things. He's going to reverse the curse of this broken creation. But he first seeks our hearts to renew it, to restore it, to make it whole again. If Jesus does not bring this peace and salvation to our hearts, if Jesus does not first slay the spiritual brokenness within us, then everything else we fight for is ultimately in vain. The kingdom of God moves first within us before it can move externally outward. The question isn't first about why is there suffering and pain in the world? The question is first, why is there suffering and pain within us? Do you have the peace and salvation of Jesus within you? And church, this is why faith and Christianity is so hard. We think the bad things are external to us. We think that we're pretty good people. We have a good handle on our lives, on our hearts, and on our sin. We think we are better than most people. Or that if not, we think that we're okay, that we're not bad. But when Jesus leads us into this rough wilderness this, these dry deserts of life, our faith is tested. And this reveals our heart within. And Jesus knows that only he can restore our brokenness, our broken hearts. Only he can be our hero. Church, do you see? Jesus calls to us. He calls to, for us to come to him in faith and confession and repentance. You know, we might mistake him for this weak and shameful draft bustle of a king just like the people did during his crucifixion. But underneath what we think is greatness and power, he is really the great and mighty king that we've all been waiting for that is going to usher in this new kingdom with no end, with no death, with no sin, with no pain, with no sorrow. He is indeed greater than we can think or that we can see. So church, come to him. Lay your burdens down at his feet. Let him restore your soul. Let him renew your heart and let him sing over you. Just as he puts our sin to death, and just as he puts even death to death, and just as he was resurrected on that third day, on Resurrection Sunday, church, let him raise you to new life. Let me end with this passage from Isaiah 53, talking about the man of sorrows. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and he, we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. We thought he was cursed, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. 
All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its sharers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Church, Jesus comes humbly in peace and gentleness, riding on a donkey. He comes willingly as a quiet lamb being led to the slaughter for us so that our anxious, unsettled, broken, and faithless hearts can now begin to know and feel real and everlasting peace. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you, we worship you. We are convicted knowing, Father, that we are the ones that put you on the cross. We praise you and worship you when things are good, when we think that you're going to deliver us out of our troubles. When things are bad, we have such a hard time trusting in you, believing in you. We trust in ourselves more than we trust in you, Father. Forgive us, Lord. Help us to know, Father, that you are the coming king. And as you come in weakness, it is not really weakness. It is truly power and strength that you come. What we think is weakness, what we think is foolishness, is wisdom to you, Lord. So we pray, Lord, that we would understand and see beyond our eyes, that you would give us hearts to see and feel and know you, spiritual eyes, as Paul tells us in Ephesians, to feel you, to know you, to understand what is the depth and the heights and the love of of your love, Father. We pray, Lord, that we would know this, that you would give us the eyes to see, the hearts to feel. Oh God, we need you. We thank you that on this Palm Sunday, Jesus comes in triumphantly, soon he comes to die we pray father that that would move us to tears that would move us to worship you knowing that you went through hell to bring us heaven so we thank you father for your goodness to us take care of us lord speak to us pray in jesus name amen